number of related sermons uh, in the last uh, year. And they have covered things like the kingdom to come and the new creation, the events of the end times. We recently did How Then Shall We Live? And in each of these, I have argued that whether we're about to enter the Great Tribulation or not, with the return of the Lord, there are certain temptations or threats that exist in all generations, and we have to be prepared to resist and endure them. The threats are assimilation, first and foremost. This has several names. One is to become a worldly Christian. Uh, other people have called it being a carnal Christian. Uh, based on a text in uh, 1 Corinthians. Some people call this cultural Christianity, and still others call it um, uh, uh, churchianity. Whatever term you're calling it, it's a compromise with the culture that results in us being conformed to the culture rather than having an identity and a lifestyle conformed to the will of God and to the image of His Son. Assimilation can be seductive or coercive. Now we've been for a very long time in an extended time of seduction, and many Christians have fallen to it, some in, uh, without realizing it, and others by trying to be seeker-friendly and then being ensnared in that. But coercion is beginning to come our way as the culture becomes less and less tolerant of Jews and Christians who hold to the biblical covenants and the commands for ourselves and for our children. The second threat is persecution. And while it has a significant history of being normative for Jews and Christians in many parts of the world, it has never really been a major part of the Jewish and Christian experience in America. Now, to be sure, there have been seasons of greater or lesser anti-Semitism. But this has not been overtly governmental or ecclesiastical. And that's critical. We'll see that in some passages today. Persecution is usually organized and systematic, and it usually goes from subtle to extreme forms. And I'll talk more about that uh, later in the, in the series. So today I want to begin a series of what we are to do in the face of persecution. In other words, how do we endure persecution? We're to resist uh, uh, assimilation. And we're to endure persecution, but there is a level of resistance to persecution that we need to talk about, which is what our Q&A have been about. So I need to address this in terms of several perspectives and foundational concepts. I'm going to do those today that will reinforce throughout the series, and then next week I'm going to go into specific verses where resistance is called for. Now, people tend to fall into two categories of thinking about this. Some follow principles, general rules, and ignore the exceptions. The rules become all of it. Others focus on the exceptions and kind of forget the principle. We really have to be aware of both the principles and the exceptions in order to do this, and it needs to be the principle first and then the exceptions, so that we don't get the emphasis on the wrong syllable. So, the order is to understand the principle first and then engage the nuances caused by the exceptions. 
So let me give you an example of this. There's a basic speed law that says that you may drive at whatever speed is safe. That's the general principle of driving uh, in American traffic. Now, there are specific rules that set an upper speed limit and a lower speed limit. Seems to me that some people aren't aware that there's a lower speed limit. You can't go less than this on certain streets. And it, there are also commandments uh, or laws that require you to stop or yield. However, if there's a broken light system, it immediately becomes a four-way stop. Again, a lot of people don't understand that, that it doesn't matter if the light system is not working, even if you have green and someone else has red, but it's not changing, then you have to move to a four-way stop. Or if you're stopped against a red light and there's an ambulance or a fire truck or a cop with their lights flashing and their siren on behind you and it's safe, you can enter that intersection, even though you have a red light, to allow them to move forward. The larger principle is not removed by these different applications. The different applications are what we have to do to accommodate unusual circumstances. I'm going to talk a little bit about unusual circumstances uh, for us today. Again, I'm laying a foundation today. We'll get much more specific next week. So I want to address some important principles regarding enduring persecution and then some unusual circumstances that we have to consider. The first principle is that we are to live, we as Jews and Christians who follow God and follow his Messiah, are to live in peaceful wisdom that retreats from harm. Okay. I want to begin with Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And the word says this, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Remember, he's talking to his Jewish uh, disciples. When they hand you over, don't worry about what, how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, Jesus is telling his 12 disciples that he's sending them out. He's sending them out at this time, but they will also go out ultimately as sheep among wolves. And he gives us three kinds of wolves. There are wolves who are religious authorities. These are those who will persecute you in the synagogues. There are governmental authorities. You will be brought before governors and kings. And then he says, scary of all, that family members will betray one another. 
Now, he's not saying all religious authorities are wolves. He's not saying all government authorities are wolves. He's not saying all family members will be wolves. But among them, there will be. So we have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? Not like a bull in a china shop uh, and dumb as an ox, right? So he tells them to do this. Now, this idea of a wise serpent or a shrewd serpent is similar to our notion of the wise old owl. Uh, if the book of Genesis had been written in an American context, Satan would have appeared as a wise owl. In the, in the cultural context of the Hebrews and the Egyptians, this idea of the serpent being wise is part of that idea. So it's not what we think of a, of a serpent, but how it was thought of as, as these texts were written. So the idea of a wise serpent, similar to our notion of a wise owl, we think of doves as peaceful and innocent, so that part makes sense to us. They're told not to worry about what they will say. Now what that means is that the wisdom and the innocence is not about strategy to win or comfort, but how to avoid the persecution. He says, for example, when you're persecuted in one city, go to another. So this is not confrontive. It is pastoral, passive and peaceful. As we read in our liturgy today where Jesus did not accuse those as he was accused. Right? Now we'll see later, particularly next week, that there are exceptions to this. So, I want you to look at another text. It's Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 3 and following, we now have a situation where Jesus is sending out 70 in pairs of two. Okay, again, a ministry uh, expansion um, and message of the kingdom uh, context here. And he says this, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no belt, bag, or shoes. Greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. If the man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you. Uh, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So when you find a peaceful place, stay there, right? Uh, then you go into the uh, city Eat what is set before you, heal those who are sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its street and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus said, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than uh, for that city. Now, Jesus basically is giving a principle of staying where there is peace, and where you are not welcome, you are to leave, but when you leave, you give a warning. In other words, you don't simply sneak out, you give a warning. There is the ritual of shaking the dust off your feet, so that those who have ears to hear might uh, follow. So this is not being belligerent, but it is concerned because judgment is coming near. Okay. Now both of these texts are given directly to the specific disciples being sent out to proclaim the message of the kingdom. 
And some people hold that this is applicable to all believers in its entirety. I'm not so sure. I think there's a difference between the people of God in general and the leadership or emissaries that are sent out to minister. Okay, people like Moses, people like the apostles. That I think there's a difference between them and 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 the general people of God. So, but whether or not I'm correct on that point, the notion of being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, not being confronted and leaving when persecuted, is a general principle that I think is foundational, and we'll return to it throughout this series. The second principle is that some will be delivered and some will suffer. The text I want for that one is Hebrews chapter 11. It's a passage you know quite well because we read it in our liturgy several times a year. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the entire chapter should be read, but I don't have time for that. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 32 and go to verse 40. In this passage... He says, what more can I say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty uh, in war, and put armies back to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Wow. That's all good stuff, boy. This is a text that tells us that those who live by faith will find deliverance and find blessing and find healing and all that. And that's great because that's true. But it continues. Others were tortured not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection, not one like Lazarus, but one like Jesus. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yet chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They were they went about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. People of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains, caves and holes in the ground. Why are they doing that? Because they are leaving where they were persecuted. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or complete. This passage reminds us that not all believers will have victorious faith in this life. Some will suffer and die. Some will be delivered and healed. But both who live victoriously and those who live in shame and persecution give witness to God for whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. As Paul says, None of these things separate us from the love of God. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. We are being killed all day long. We have to be prepared, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to say when we are confronted, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we will not bend the knee to another God. And we must never believe that the one who is delivered is greater than the one who suffers. It's actually the other way around. 
The one who suffers is closer to Christ than the one who gets the victory. Remember from the earlier series, the book of Revelation talked about those who are sealed in their forehead and protected during that tribulation period. But then there are many, many, many more of every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue who are killed as a testimony of the Lord. So as Peter tells us, we're not to suffer as evildoers, but if we suffer as a Christian and for righteousness sake, there is no shame, but there is glory and the presence of the Lord's Spirit upon us. So we're not necessarily looking to end all suffering, but to avoid it where we can and to endure it where we can't. Because whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now there's a third principle that I want to give us today, and that one's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to uh, 15. Actually, it's the whole chapter, sorry. Let me read that for you. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petition and thanksgiving, be made on behalf of all men. We're supposed to be intercessors in prayer. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. And I have been appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreet, not with braided hair, gold pearls, and costly garments, rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. He goes on and talks about the woman must quietly receive instruction. He's talking about the wives there. Uh, I do not allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over a husband, but to remain quiet. Because Adam was first created, then Eve, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. But the women will preserve through the bearing of children uh, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Remember, childbirth is very painful, and part of that that goes back to that. So Paul's referring back to Genesis. He seems to be indicating here that our lives are to be as men who pray without anger and dispute, and women who are adorned with modesty and good works as we become husbands and wives in family to procreate and to demonstrate in our marital roles God's character because we are bearing the image of God. Again, the focus of us being created, male and female, is not to change the world as equals, but to join together in marriage and then to raise children and to be in community. Now, if this passivity and quietness is the norm and the general principle, when do we resist and stand our ground? When do we confront? 
That's an important and difficult issue. And I want to address it more fully next week when we can really look at some verses where that is happening. And remember, it will happen against religious authorities, it will happen against governmental authorities, and it will happen against family. Okay? And that's where this struggle is going to be. So, we're living, though, in abnormal circumstances, and we need to address that. So, I want to talk about one more thing. I want to talk about the issue of government, and then I want to talk about our government, so that we understand that we're somewhat in an odd kind of setting for this. So, if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 13. We'll go into this in more detail next week, but I want to get it started this week. Romans chapter 13 says, Every person, every one of us, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For the rulers are not a cause of fear of good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise of the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is the minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, the, the punishment, but also for conscience sake. And because of this, you pay taxes and uh, are servants of God, devoting yourselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone, but love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, there is a theology of government in both Judaism and Christianity. That theology of government states that government itself is ordained of God. And its purpose is the punishment of those who do evil and the reward of those who do good. So obedience to government then comes from two notions. One is conscience. Conscience is that we obey the one who is in authority out of respect for God. He has commanded that we obey those who are in authority. So out of conscience for God, we do that. The second is fear. The government can punish, and that punishment can be harsh. Now, wait a minute, you might say. What if government is not always doing the right thing? They're not always rewarding the good and punishing the evil. So what do we do? Well, there is a principle here, both in terms of authority and in terms of marital roles and family roles, that Peter is going to give us information about. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 13. 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. So, here's what he says. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act free, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as a bond slave of God. So honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now he then goes on and says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there when you sin? You are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, with patiently you endure it, this finds favor with God. And you have been called for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So this idea is that we are to even submit to uh, authority when they are not necessarily following the theology of government that they should. There are exceptions. We'll talk about those exceptions. But I want you to see that the general principle is about living at peace. So when we become... Uh, uh, argumentative, when we become belligerent, when we become threatening, we are not doing what we are called to do. This has to be considered when we look at the biblical text about clear resistance and confrontation, which we will do next week. Now I want to talk about one other circumstance that's not paralleled in the scripture. can't give a Bible verse for this. Because the world of the Bible had no governmental system like we do. Uh, it talks about kings, and it talks about governors, and it talks about those in a context of a pretty solid, centralized government. And there was very little of what you and I experience as government there. The American experience experiment is an attempt at self-governing, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it's one that includes a constitutional system of checks and balances that attempt to curb the power of the majority, the power of the wealthy, and the power of the influential with a goal of liberty and justice for all individually, which is based on due process, judgment by our peers, and many other safeguards. You and I have rights. We have privilege. We have the ability to redress those in government. We participate in voting and in jury duty. We have the right to free speech and assembly and protest. And as a result, the American rugged individualism lives strong in many of us. I mean, we fought a rev revolution and a civil war. Both of those involved brothers fighting brothers, fathers fighting sons, sons fighting fathers. So we have this sense of freedom and a tendency for that freedom to push us towards vengeance. I'm reminded of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. In Luke 9, uh, Jesus was not accepted in Samaria as he was traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And when James and John saw that the Samaritans were not accepting him, they said, Lord, you want us to call down thunder and lightning to consume them? And the Bible says that Jesus rebuked them. One form of the text says you don't know what spirit you're of, right? The discerning of spirits. You're following a spirit of vengeance, not a spirit of peace. Okay? God has not given us a spirit uh, of 
anger and all of that. He's given us a sound mind and a, a peaceful mind. Because of that, Jesus calls them in Luke chapter 10, sons of thunder. The anger of man does not accomplish the will of God. That's why Paul says, I want us to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So we as Americans need to be even more careful regarding these things. We must not be the family member who harms the other in righteous indignation. Now we'll talk about righteous indignation next week when we look at when these things happen. But we need to make sure it's righteous indignation and not personal indignation. Now it's possible that you're frustrated by this and think that there really is no place of resistance. That's that's not true. But we need to understand the resistance carefully so that we're sure we're doing it biblically because the will of God and the wrath of man are coming into connection here. And we have to try to understand where the place is where we stop being quiet and speak and then where we speak boldly and where we stand rather than retreat. And we're going to look at those uh, texts next week. So let me pray, and then we'll do a little Q&A, and uh, we'll go from there. So let me turn off the, uh, the, the 